Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of For What It's Worth. I think we're up to episode 11. Don't hold me to that, but I think that's where we're at. Now, I'm going to jump right in here. I know I've been away for a while. An explanation is in hand. I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico full-time, and my life out here is busy in all the right ways. So I have been out about in the wilds quite a bit. I've been making stuff, which you will be... uh, Privy to in the near future, I've got a couple of new projects, one based in California, uh, one ongoing one out here that I'm working on. So there's going to be a lot more photography, a lot more documentary stuff, and just a lot more adventure, which is the most important part of the whole thing. So if you're not out having adventures, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? So I want to start out this week with with the same thing I always do, which is my hero. And we've had some pretty interesting heroes over the last 10 episodes, but I think today's might be as strategically important as you could possibly be. And today's hero is George Harding. Now I'm waiting for you. I'm going to give you a little, a few, a little bit of time. I'm going to give you a few moments to try to figure out who George Harding is. You're probably thinking literary figure, maybe a photographer, maybe an explorer. But oh no, George Harding was way more important. I'm just going to read you a little, uh, little history. In the 1960s, a patent was issued to George Harding, co-founder of Polyjohn Corporation, for a polyethylene portable restroom. These restrooms hit the market in the 1970s and were much more durable, lighter, and easier to move than their fiberglass competitors. Yes, boys and girls, George Harding was the inventor of the porta potty Now, for you European and Australian and Asian and Latin American friends, and maybe you're tuning in from the polar caps, I don't know. But uh, I'm guessing that you have your own version of the porta potty and the porta potty, we've all been there. We've all we've all had to had to uh, engage with these over time, and they can leave you scarred. Let's be honest. I've got some advice for porta potties, but I also have a great porta potty story, which is not for the faint of heart. So if you are faint of heart, you might want to sign off now because this story is pretty classic. And thankfully, I was a witness to the story and not a participant. I mean, I was there, but I didn't, you know, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about in a minute. So my hero is George Harding. The porta potty is at every single event we all go to anywhere, I'm guessing, in the world. These portable toilets, which are, which are terrific experiences. I mean, horrific. Yeah, horrific is what I'm after here. Uh, they're like a soccer match. You don't want to touch anything with your hands, and you don't want to look down. And what I do love is that right around the top of the porta potty, there's, there's a little mesh window. And when you're in the porta potty and you're looking out the mesh window, it really feels like the outside world is a wonderful and beautiful place that you definitely want to get back to as fast as humanly possible. So here's my porta potty story, and then we will move on to more serious matters. So back in the day, this is going back to the 80s. Uh, I lived in San Antonio, Texas, and there was an event every year that happened at a college that was sort of near downtown San Antonio. It was a popular college in the area, and they had this event. And they had this event every year, and it revolved around uh, seafood. And so people would come in from all over, and it was a giant party like all these things are. And San Antonio is great at partying. San Antonio knows how to party. They have night in old San Antonio. I'd seen Stevie Ray Vaughan play. They piped in beer underground. I mean, there was like massive amounts of partying happening. That's one of the reasons why I love San Antonio. But my brother and I went to this event. And I think it's the singular time that I attended this event. I think I only went once, even though this has been a long-running tradition. So it's, of course, it's Texas in the summer, and it's 10,000 degrees with 10,000% humidity, and it's miserable. But at that time, we didn't care. We were, like, shirtless, no sunscreen. I was probably wearing, like, jean shorts 
and white high tops with my socks pulled all the way up to my knees. That just tells you the era that we're talking about. So we go to this thing, and by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the crowd is just gone. They're just hammered. There's, like, bodies everywhere. It looks terrible. I don't know if the music's still going. All I know is you're trying to find any reason to get out of this place. And so my brother and I are getting ready to leave. And, of course, when you're drinking as much beer as we were drinking, which is, you know, magnify your body weight by eight. And I think you're in the general ballpark of how much beer we'd had. You, you know, you have to pee all the time. So these porta potties are getting worse and worse and worse as the day goes on. And as we get go to go to leave, I'm like, I can't go in the porta potties again. I just can't do it. I'm not going in there. I'm not brave enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not man enough to go in there because they're starting to overflow. You get the picture. So my brother and I are taking evasive action in terms of peeing, but I'm looking out at this row of porta potties, and they have the porta potties lined up on top of a hill that is on the other side of the porta potty. It's a steep drop off into like a you know, the San Antonio River, even though it's not the river, it's just a concrete, you know, place where if there was a torrential flood, maybe it would be a river. And the porta potties are a little bit of an angle. They're kind of leaning forward, just a little bit. So I'm watching people go in. And now, of course, let me remind you how hammered the crowd is. So there are some truly twisted people out there who are also watching people go in the porta potties. And they're waiting for people to go in, and then they're running around behind the porta potties, and they're tipping them over. Now, just think about that for a second. You're on a, you're in a porta potty that's overflowing. Okay, that's bad. That's really bad. That's like I'll give you the launch codes. Just let me out of this place. And then someone, some bright individual, comes around from behind, and tips it over. And oh, by the way, when it tips over, it tips over on the door. So now you're inside the porta potty, laying on your probably on your face, uh, in a porta potty that's been turned over and is now flowing out all over you, and you can't get out because the weight of the thing is keeping the door closed. And I saw this happen to a couple of people. Now I think the people who tipped it over knew the people that were going into the porta potty, and you know the, the the good Samaritan would have run over and tried to turn this thing over. I ran as fast as I could to the parking lot to get away because I wanted to try to erase what I had just seen. But that's my porta potty story, and I just want you to take a minute and let that sink in and realize the next time you go in a porta potty, you better make sure what's behind it. And uh, now they're starting to they're all tied together or they're attached together, so you can't do that. But this was again back in the day, porta potties. It was like porta potty 1.0 back then. And now we're at like 4.0. So, oof, yeah. And I will never go back to that event again, in case you're wondering. That was point number one. Thanks, George, George Harding. You've saved a lot of people. Uh, number two, I want to give you an AG23 update. I just bought a ticket to Seattle, Washington. I am flying up in the near future. And Rick from Beyond and I are going to sit down, and we are going to cull through the content for the first issue and get it sent off to the designer in Sydney. I'm very excited about this. And one of the things that I keep floating around in my head, especially now because the political climate is so odd, and I guess I would say the cultural climate in the U.S. is so odd, is that I like to be challenged, right? I don't, I don't mean someone in my face yelling at me, but I like to be challenged to solidify my beliefs by looking at information that may or may not correspond with my personal views. And the reason I'm bringing this up is a couple of weeks ago, I was with a friend here in Santa Fe, and he said to me, he goes, you know, you're kind of amazing to me in one way, okay? So he wasn't throwing me a bone telling me I was a great guy. He was just amazed at one thing. He said, you're able to hang out and to spend time and to talk with people 
whose views about life and politics and religion and whatever else are polar opposite from you, but you're able to talk to them and you're able to be friends with them and you can walk away disagreeing and you can still be friends with them. And he said, I can't do that. I can't do it. I don't want to be around people that don't have the same views as me. And I, I can't, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be friends with them. And he said, I've never been able to do that, but you somehow are able to do that. And I said, well, if I wasn't that way, I would not be able to do my job. I mean, I would not be able to function in the world. I'm in too many different places with too many different kinds of people. And I don't necessarily want to always be around people who are exactly like me or believe the same things as me. I think that's one of the great things in life is your opinion, your mind can be changed. If you're presented with data or with information or you have a personal experience that gets you to see something in a different light. And so for me with AG23, I hope that there are things in the magazine that make me a little bit uncomfortable in terms of whether it's the content or the direction of the person who's telling the story or even if it's a person telling a story that I don't agree with at all. I'm curious as to what that means to you, to all of you people who are going to be seeing this zine. Can you look at something that makes you uncomfortable? And I think that's sort of where, when I look around at our culture and our society today, especially the political climate, and I just see people so dug in and so entrenched on their side, I, I just think to myself, you know, as a collective, I think if we stripped away all the, all the drama we would realize it's not working as a culture and society and political climate. It's just not working. Even if you're a Trump supporter and you're a Republican fan and those folks are in control right now, without the shadow of, beyond the shadow of a doubt, they are in control. I think if you stripped away all the pretense and all the drama and all the posturing and you said, do you really think that this political system is working the way it should? I don't think that they would be able to say, yes, I think it's working perfectly. I just don't see that happening. So AG to me is a catalyst to get me and you and everyone else and everyone involved to just kind of like say, look, I'm going to open this and I'm just going to take it in and I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out why Dan and Rick think that I should be looking at this. That's my point with it. All right. Point number three is about hunting and fishing. And now that I'm out here in New Mexico, hunting and fishing is a much bigger part of life than it was in uh, Southern California. Not that I'm going to go out and do a lot of hunting. Um, I just bought a spinning rod for the first time in 25 years, and I've, I've been fly fishing my whole life. So I'll continue to fly fish, but now I, can, I have a spinning rod again so I can go and fish for bass and pike and things that I wasn't fishing for with my fly rod. But um, it reminded me of something because uh, hunting out here, you know, getting a deer tag, getting an elk tag, it's a big deal for a lot of people, and it's a big deal for a lot of Americans. Hunting is, is a huge—the percentage of households in America that are involved in hunting, it's pretty sizable. It's probably far more sizable than you think. But I live a weird life because I spend my, most of my time around the art and photography worlds, and yet I also grew up hunting and fishing. My father was a competitive shooter. I was a competitive shooter. My, you know, there, uh, my history with like, you know, hunting and fishing goes way back. My parents were doing this before I was even born. That's how we ended up in Wyoming, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but I find it peculiar because the art and photography world tends to be vehemently anti-gun and also vehemently anti-sort of sport in general. So most of my photographer friends and art world friends in particular they're like, they don't watch football. They don't watch baseball. So they look down on sports. They look down on hunting and fishing, all of that stuff. But the, but the, the hypocrisy is what's entertaining to me. And I thought about this the other day because out here, people are trying to get elk tags for the fall. And most of the people I know didn't get one. So it's hard. It's really hard to get one. But I remember sitting in Manhattan eating with a friend of mine. And I have seen, I met this friend in California. 
I've seen him in other parts of the country. I was having dinner with him in Manhattan, and he's a photographer, and he's a pretty successful guy. He's really interesting. He's lived a varied life. He's been all over the world, blah, blah, blah. He, I, I, I'm not joking. He's eating veal, okay? And he's saying to me that he's anti-hunt and how anyone could go and kill something like a deer or an elk was just so wrong in his mind. And I was sitting there laughing, and I said to him, you know, I kind of find it ironic that of all people in all places at, at all times, you're eating a piece of veal, you know? And I said, do you have any idea what goes in? It's called milk-fed veal for a reason, right? They put, the, they put the animal in a pen so it can't move, so the meat is incredibly tender, and then they basically feed it milk so it gets a certain kind of fat, and that's how you get veal. It's not a, a humane thing by any stretch of the imagination. But it really got me thinking because I, I don't have anything against people hunting deer, elk, antelope, you know, things that you're going to eat, right? And in Texas and places like that, there's such a massive overpopulation of animals that they, I think it used to be, I don't know what it's like now, but back in the day when you bought, when you got a deer tag in Texas, it came with like six or seven deer and they would encourage you to shoot that many because there was such an overpopulation. And with the western part of the United States being sold off, you know, lots and lots of land and, and really what's looking like a lot of public land is going to be put up for sale, there's a lot less space. And, and we're developing as a nation and a country and we're sprawling out into all these wild places. There's less habitat and so these species are overcrowded. I don't have any, any problem people hunting and then eating these things. And my experience with hunters and fishermen is, is twofold. You have the total rednecks who get drunk and drive around uh, and shoot dove and quail out of their pickups, you know, hammered. You have the guys that, that are in air-conditioned blinds that have a corn feeder 50 feet away that are shooting deer walking up to a feeder. That's not hunting to me. That's shooting. I don't like any of that. I don't hang out with those people. I've been out a couple of times when I was younger as a kid with people that I took one look at and said, I'm not hunting with these people. I don't want to be around anyone like that that has a gun in their hands. But for the but for the most part, the vast majority of people that I've been around hunting and fishing in my life going back to elementary school have not only been normal, basic people, good people, but they're also incredibly uh, environmentally conscious because they don't want this to go away. They're trying to protect the, the lands and the species so that this can continue for generations and generations. But unless you've been in the field, unless you've been hunting, if you haven't, if you haven't been out there, it's really hard to make a statement. And I'll narrow this down to one thing, which is bow hunting, right? For and I'll I'll narrow it down even further: bow hunting for elk. So I was somewhere a couple of weeks ago, and someone saw an image of a guy, a bow hunter, with a big bull elk that they downed. And again, I know this person who was freaked out by this picture and said, "Oh my God, I can't believe it!" And this person eats meat. I've had burgers at their house many times. They eat meat, but for some reason, you know, this other, this, the species of elk they view is different than a, than a cow, and so they don't have any emotional attachment to a cow or factory farming, and so, but the, the elk. And I said, look, you know, I've been on feedlots. I've seen factory farms. Um, it's not pretty. It's really not pretty. And for someone, if you've ever tried to get close to an elk with or without a bow and arrow, uh, it's really hard. They're uh, incredible animals, and they're incredibly difficult to get close to, even on horseback. Uh, I've tried many times in Wyoming and failed about 99.9% of the time. When, when you are close to an elk, it's, it's your, the hair on your arm stands up because, they're, first of all, they're huge. And two, they're just a pretty majestic thing. And when they're bugling, uh, it sounds unlike what you first think when someone says elk bugle and you think in your head what that would sound like. But when you hear elk bugling and fighting, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. But to get close to an elk with a bow... And to make a successful kill with a bow, that is incredibly difficult. Your odds are very, very low. So in terms of like, 
comparing to what to hunting elk with a bow to someone who's you know getting hamburger from the store not equating the fact that that cow was in a factory farm or a feedlot fattened up and then basically killed for for meat and again i'm not anti-meat i'm not anti-beef by any stretch i just think it's the world that we live in but i find it kind of ironic and hypocritical sometimes when people are sort of pointing the finger at at hunters. Um, and even now people are upset about fishing. It's weird. I think people, someone, I heard someone the other day say people are just looking for a reason to be upset. And I'm kind of starting to believe that maybe that's the case. I don't want to believe that because life is such a great thing. I'm looking out a window right now at giant sunflowers in front of me, a perfectly blue sky. We've got a meteor shower tonight that I'm going to go out and try to hit. It's one of the best ones of the year. I'm hoping it stays clear. There's plenty of positive stuff happening. So don't get pissed at people hunting. It just seems weird. Okay, point number four. Number one was porta potty, genius, George Harding. Number two was AG23 update. Number three was hunting and fishing and the sort of hypocrisy of people who eat meat and kind of bag on hunters. I don't quite get that. Number four is about greed. And this is what's interesting to me is I think I was on a bike ride this morning with three other people and we were talking about narcissism and how sort of the phone, because the, the size of the screen, you know, we started with television and then television. Uh, the screens got bigger and bigger, and then the internet came, and now we're down to these little tiny phones. And it's almost like the cell phone has focused the beam of narcissism because it's so small and you can hold it in your hand, and people are looking at, looking at themselves all day long. And we were talking about narcissism. And I said, well, if you're going to define the U.S. culture in, in singular words, I said narcissism would probably be in the top three, in my opinion. But the top one right now, I think personally, would be greed. And I think when you look at the chaos that's happening in our culture and society, at the root, the root cause of all of that is greed. So let's say that you look at whatever, Republicans in the Senate right now, they're controlling things, and Mitch, you know, whatever, Moscow Mitch and Lion Lindsey. I love all the nicknames, by the way, for both parties. It just, you know, adds a little spice. But you look at these guys and you say, okay, well, maybe they're trading democracy uh, in the short run for short-term financial gain. And I think, you know, you look at the environmental movement and what the, the negative things of what's happening and overdevelopment and giving out gas permits and they're fracking Chaco Canyon and all that. It's agreed. It's people saying, I want to maximize my profit. It's looking at CEOs of corporations who are being judged quarterly. And if they don't hit their quarterly number, they don't get X amount of bonus. And so, it, you know, I don't necessarily fault them. You, you look at what they're doing and you think, wow, this is like counterproductive for society in general. And if you look at the CEOs of major corporations over the last 10 years that have been busted in really fraudulent activity, and you think to yourself, why would you do that if you know that it's bad for society in general? Well, they're being, they're saying, look, you don't hit this number this quarter, you're done, you're out. And so the guy's like, what? A, okay, perfect. I'll do that. I'll take whatever it takes to get there. And I think greed is really the focus of all of our issues right now whether it's for a bigger house or a faster car or another new computer, or whatever. And hey, I'm pointing the finger at myself. I'm sitting here with a Zoom H6 audio recorder. Yeah, I've had it for a few years, and I, but I could have bought a H4, H5, whatever. I don't need, I lust after new bicycles all the time. But, you know, I'm guilty as well. But greed, I think, is really the dominant factor in our, uh, in our culture. But here's the thing. At some point, the music is going to stop. And when it stops this time, I think what we're looking at is something far worse than what happened in 2008. I really, really, really hope that's not the case, but I see indicators, I hear indicators, 
I've had certain friends in certain places reach out to me and say, save your money. Um, I've talked to real estate people who've seen an odd freeze in, in markets that really have not had a freeze in a long time. Some of the hottest markets in the country, nothing's moving, no one's looking, and everyone's waiting, I think, for what's going to happen in 2020 with the election. And it's turning out to be a circus, obviously. I mean, whether um, Trump wins or loses, I think it's going to be really, really, really ugly uh, in either direction. And I think people are scared. So um, I think eventually we have to level out. I mean, obviously, the greed is not a new thing. I'm reading a book right now about uh, Custer and the Little Bighorn. And basically, you know, the reason Custer is dead basically is greed because they figured out that there was gold in the in – the, uh, in the Black Hills. And they said, okay, well, we'll buy the land from the Sioux. And the Sioux said, we don't really want to sell the land. And Grant, President Grant said, well, if you don't sell us the land, we're going to consider that an act of war and we're coming in. And they did. And Custer got his ass handed to him. But, you know, ultimately we wiped out the Sioux and, and most of the other uh, tribes. And that's, that's greed, you know, and it goes all the way back to the history, the origins of our country. But at some point you think as human beings, we would look at each other and say, look, let's write this ship, right? Because what's better than an entire country of happy, resourceful, content, focused people. Imagine the things that United States could pull off if we had that going for us. I'm not holding my breath, people, but anyway. All right, so the last point I wanted to make was I just did a film last week with Mark Silber, who's out of Northern California. Um, he has something on YouTube called Advancing Your Photography, and uh, I've known Mark for a while now. We did a film. I just released it today on my site. But I think it's good. I think it's a decent film because the questions they were asking were, were good. And it's long enough that I can extrapolate on some of these topics. But my goal is that it remains focused on image making. You know, there were questions about equipment and whether I'm, whether I'm using film or digital and if I'm using Leicas and things like that. I don't think those questions will ever go away, but the point is that it's it, none of that really matters until you're making images, and I'm hoping that the series continues. And we, he and I are going to continue this series. I'm actually going to start um, photographing slash filming myself, and the idea is that Mark uses it, I use it, Blurb uses it, etc. And it's going to be primarily photography and bookmaking based. And I just got some Rode mics. I got Rode uh, mic, what are they called? I knew I would forget the name. I, I got them a week ago, and I haven't taken them out of the box. They're still in the box. Rode Wireless Go, I think they are. They're tiny. They're two, let me think. They're, you know those things that called Square that you put in your phone you can take credit card, uh, uh, credit card payments through? They're basically the two of those the same size. One's a transmitter, one's a receiver. One fits in the hot shoe. And then all I have to do afterwards is hit sync video in, or sync audio in Premiere, and it'll link it up. But it's a little one that clips on my shirt. It has a little tiny, um, you know, wind windscreen on it. But it's the sound's clear, and it works from a long way away. So I can, like, set up the camera, get on my bike, and be coming from, you know, 300 yards away. And you can still hear my voice perfectly without the wind on the bike. I can record from the truck. I can do all this stuff when I'm out in the field. So I'm really hoping to do this. Now, I know that some of you are out there shaking your heads. Some of you are out there wringing your hands, cursing me. And saying, Milner, what are you thinking? You've tried this a hundred times before. What You're not, you suck at video, Milner. You suck at video. And it's true. You would be 100% correct. And you would also be correct that I have tried this a hundred times. And all 100 
I have a perfect record. All 100, I came away with saying, I'm never going to do this again because I hate doing it. I, and again, I think what it stems from is the fact that my generation didn't photograph themselves. There are exceptions, obviously. You know, you, had, you have um, Arno Mikkonen, who's been shooting self-portraits forever, who's fantastic. But in general, before the internet, before the cell phone, my generation, we didn't take pictures of ourselves. We didn't film ourselves. We pointed our cameras out in the world, and now that's flipped. And, and a lot of people are just spending all their time filming and photographing themselves because it builds them enough following. They can make a living, et cetera. I totally get it. But I do suck at that because I always feel like such a douche when I'm sitting there filming and talking about myself. But if there's a need and there's an audience for this that someone is getting something from it that makes someone better at photography or unlock something for them that I w am willing to do that. I don't see this as being some sort of audience builder for me. What I would do with the audience, I don't know. I'd probably bore them to death with the Lyme disease and the fly fishing and the cycling and all this stuff that everyone says, don't do that. And that's all that I do. So uh, that's where we're at. So stay tuned for some more films. They'll probably be bad vlog-style films, but whatever. And, uh, and that's my uh, For What It's Worth for this week. I hope that there was something vaguely interesting or uh, inspiring. Or maybe there's something that really made you mad. Maybe you're an elk activist. I don't know. There's probably such thing as an elk activist. I've never seen one. I haven't seen an elk in a long time, actually. But there's probably one within 50 miles of where I am right now. There's probably more than one. But um, anyway, I'm not going to be hunting elk anytime soon, but I'm going to be fishing soon. And I will make, of course, 4K, 8K videos of me fishing with super cool um, co-motion graphics on the front and back end. I should have just said motion graphics. Co-Motion is a bike brand out of Colorado, so you can tell where my head is right now. It's on the bike. Anyway, there'll be much more uh, for what it's worth in the future. Let me know if there's any topics that you want me to talk about. I may or may not do it, but maybe you've got something interesting or something that I don't agree with, and for that reason, I will be talking about it. So let me just leave you with this. Tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow's a positive day, no matter where you are. It doesn't matter what temperature is, if it's pouring rain, snowing, sleeting, whatever. You're caught in quicksand. Look up. There's always an upside to things. And let's just stay focused and stay positive and try to be friendly. Good luck, and I'll talk to you soon.